I, I fake it well. I'm an introvert, but I like, I mean, I like talking to people. Like I like this, I like small conversations and I like presenting, but what I can't deal is with like massive cocktail parties where you're supposed to talk to a whole bunch of people or like concerts or the streets of New York City or any, anything like that. Right. For me. (laughs) Okay. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacy Jones. Today, I'm so pleased to have Susan Beyer with us, who's joining us to speak about how agencies and brands can best define their target audiences and develop personas to better build marketing campaigns. Susan developed her expertise in audience-based marketing strategy over more than 30 years in product and brand management, market research, and strategic planning, both agency side and client side. She has an MBA in entrepreneurship and marketing and has held senior positions at Fortune 500 firms, as well as marketing agencies, having worked with such companies as the Dial Corporation, Tosco, ConocoPhillips, Circle K Stores, Essential Brands, and numerous agencies. Almost a decade ago, Susan went out on her own and launched Audience Audit, a company that dives in to provide and make understandable targeted customer data to help better focus marketing efforts, grow revenue, and profits. Susan spends her time helping organizations better understand the needs of their customers, and today is here to help all of us better understand who each one of us is actually marketing to. Susan is a stats and research woman and totally geeks out about audience segmentation, but what's fantastic, and you're about to find out, is that she makes it really easy to understand. I've known Susan from her speaking at an agency owners group that I belong to, Agency Management Institute. And her grasp on how to conduct research surveys and how to actually interpret that data is quite impressive. Susan is also a fellow alum of mine of the University of Arizona. Go Wildcats. Go Wildcats. A warm welcome to you. Thank you very much, Stacey. It's wonderful to be here. (laughs) Really greatly appreciate having you here. So let me tell you, literally on a daily basis, my team will jump on a call with a new brand to talk about opportunities within branded content and influencer partnerships. And one of the first questions we get asked always comes with this big pause and a moment of silence. (laughs) And that question that confuses so many brand managers is when we ask who their actual target demographic is that they want to engage with. Because so often someone comes to the table with the idea of what they want to do and is totally not going to be spot on for who is actually purchasing their products. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to you today because people don't necessarily at brands and agencies always quite understand the personas they're targeting to. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I'm I'm always amazed when somebody that I'm working with um, on the client side comes in with an, with, you know, even, even their own sense of, uh, of who that is. I think, I think we all have a picture in our heads, but I think a lot of times in organizations, it just really hasn't been fleshed out. It hasn't been shared. So there's not sort of a common understanding of who the best audiences are. And when I talk to small businesses and ask who their audiences are, guess what the number one question I, the answer I get is, I have no idea asking you what, what that means or the answer I get is everyone. Oh, oh yes. (laughs) Yes. No, honestly. Yes. I get Oh, adults. I'm like adults. All adults. Every adult. White adults. adults, Black adults. Is that (laughs) anyone with a bank account? Yeah. So no, I, I, it's a common problem. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the number one things that I see organizations and quite frankly even agencies doing wrong with respect to personas is that they don't do that right and i know there are a lot of folks out there who think this is just sort of some made up exercise so that agencies can make more money off of their clients or something um but i don't think that's true i think a lot of the i think a lot of the the negative feelings that people may have about personas is because they've had an experience with personas where they weren't helpful, you sure. know, and, and that happens a lot. Like I, you know, clients spend a bunch of money, agencies spend a bunch of time developing personas that, that don't actually help. And of course, in that situation, you're going to kind of get a bad taste in your mouth about that work. It's like, you know, I do research all the time and I pretty much go in assuming that everybody's had at least one bad experience with research because, it wasn't helpful. It cost a bunch of money. It never got used. So, of course, they have that perception. And I think to some degree, that's what happens uh, with personas. 
No, and I get that. And I remember when we first signed up for HubSpot for inbound marketing mm-hmm. for our agency, it's like the first thing it wanted me to do was design these perspe- uh, the personas. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> I'm like, what? I No, I want a marketing manager. I want a, a C-suite CMO. What do you, how do I need to figure this stuff out? This isn't for me at all. So yeah. I get it from the brand side, a hundred percent. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's taken some time for me to get on board and understand and, and sell into our clients when we're working with them that importance of doing so. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not easy work to do. Um, you know, I think one of the fascinating things to me about personas is how far they can go if they're done well in telling you who you don't want, which is, which is something that a lot of clients really have trouble getting their head around. You know, what do you mean? There isn't anybody we don't want. Um, But if you spend time with them and you talk about personas sort of in a a different way with a different perspective, and, you know, I know we're going to talk about that. I I think it does show you that there are customers that you don't want, um, which can be, I would argue, equally as valuable as identifying the ones that you do. Right. A hundred percent. And it's so easy as an agency owner uh, to get it where someone's like, Oh, I have this much money. And you're like, Oh, I want it. Even if Mm -hmm. it's not someone who's going to be our ideal client to be working with. So on the brand side, same thing. Oh, they have money. They'd want to buy this product. Of course I want to sell to this individual versus, you know, targeting in and really finding the individuals who are going to buy more and more frequently and at greater volumes. And are going to be less of a pain in the ass. I mean, excuse my language, but really we've all had the experience of looking back on a client and going, I wish I had never worked with that client. Like, I wish we'd never let that person buy something from us, you know, because, because it didn't go well. We didn't perform well. Word of mouth was bad as a result. They were a nightmare. They made our people cry, you know, whatever it is like there's, it's easy to look back, but of course, looking forward, it's a lot harder to get yourself in the frame of mind that says, I, actually, there are people or organizations from whom I, 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 for whom I'd refuse to work, whose yeah. money I wouldn't take. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's important to go through this practice, but it's not, it's not easy. And we, we, I think we've all been taught to do it wrong. Um, and I think that the end result is that there are a lot of personas out there that are driving some sort of bad, bad image about that whole, that whole process. Sure. So how do you do it right? What is the well, way? So I think, I mean, how about if I tell you how we do it wrong? Okay. Because let's talk about how you let's do Let's talk it about how we do it wrong. And, Perfect. and then, and then I'll talk about too, how, how I think we need to be doing it differently. So, okay. you know, we talked about the first problem, which is that people aren't doing them at all. So, you know, the issue with that is it just assumes that everybody's the same and everybody isn't. Even everybody who buys something from you is not the same. And if you start treating them all the same, um, you miss a lot of opportunities to really connect, which is, which is why I think people buy. You know, you can't treat everyone the same and make them feel connected to you. And I think that's how all of us make purchase decisions is that we feel that a company or a brand understands us and has a product for us. Um, and if, if you're treating everybody the same, that's, that's not happening. The second problem I think is that, and you know, I say this with the utmost regard for all of those marketers out there and folks working in agencies. I am one of you. Uh, and so have done this myself, but you know, we guess, we just guess right. we sit around, we get, we get the team in the conference room for the new client and we try to get some young people and some older people. We do the best we can sort of within the agency walls. And we sit around and brainstorm what we think the personas are for this particular client. Um, and we're guessing. Um, okay. And, and you know, I know you, you know Jay Bayer. Um, he, he was stuck in the airport today for about seven hours. And he, he asked people on Instagram to just ask him questions that he would answer during his time while he was waiting in between flights. And somebody asked him... Um, and said, you know, I'm starting up a, a new company and I'm just wondering sort of what the first steps should be or whatever. And, and Jay's answer, I thought was absolutely on point and really telling. He said, take 10 hours 
and do 10 interviews with people that you think are your ideal customers. And that is the best way mm -hmm. to kick off. And, you know, we just don't, we're not listening. We're not exploring. We're not researching. We're just, you know, we're just guessing. Um, right. And and the problem with that is that it, it, you know, it may not work. And unfortunately, you know, we're not back in Mad Men days. And now if it doesn't work, we can see it. The client can see it. They see the same dashboards from Google that, that we have. And they see that their ads aren't working and their sales aren't climbing. And, and then the agency gets fired, you know, so that's not good. Guessing's not good. Sure. Uh, one of the first questions your team is asking yeah. new clients is, you know, what is the demographic that you're targeting? And there's this okay. silence and clients don't always know. Right. And I think that's the wrong question. I think demographics are the wrong way to build a persona okay. um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is that demographics just don't explain why people are doing something. I mean, you can, you can line up a bunch of people that look exactly the same on paper in terms of income and gender or organizations that are in the same vertical and have roughly the same revenue and people with the same title in those organizations. And they are making different purchase decisions because they have different stuff going on that's causing problems that they're trying to solve. Um, so, you know, demographics that are women, men, families, you know, whatever, they're just not, they don't tell us what we need to know as marketers, which is why people are, people are doing things. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that demographics can be part of a strong persona, but my problem is if you start with demographics, that's where most people stop, right? Like it's a box right. that people just check off and say, oh good, I have my personas, tick, and they're just, you know, they're just a woman, 25 to 49 with a Volvo, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, Nothing about likes or interests. Right. Or... We just don't go any further. We don't right. dig any further. And, you know, some of my favorite questions um, when developing personas is, uh, are around sort of what, what problem are you trying to solve? It's sort of the why are you here question, you know? <laughs> Somebody walks into a store in the mall you know, why are you there? What is it you're looking for? And, and what are its characteristics? And why are you looking for that thing? Um, and then why haven't you solved that problem already? You know, there's no shortage of service providers, product manufacturers, brands out in the world. Um, why haven't you found the solution for your problem yet? What has been in the way? And those questions get you a lot deeper than just sort of the superficial demographics or business characteristics or, or whatever, which is where people usually um, stop with personas. Um, and what I see a lot with sort of demographic personas is that agencies, I think, I think maybe in an effort to justify to clients the money that they've spent on the persona process, mm -hmm. just make them really complicated and like cram them with all sorts of crazy stuff you know? And the, so the client looks at them and feels like they're really needy, I think is the thinking. But what I say is, what I see is clients who are confused, who just can't really make sense of that and don't know what to do with it. You know, it just becomes sort of overwhelming. Uh, I don't, I don't know the extent to which, unless you're a automotive company or related service, how knowing what car somebody drives helps you figure out your marketing message to them. Right. Um, if you're a grocery store or whatever, like it's just, you know, even things like income, I always get asked about income and income isn't correlated to purchase decisions in that way because we spend our money um, on the things that are important to us. And, you know, discretionary spending, you may spend a ton of money on shoes and I may spend a ton of money on tech. Um, and you may have a lot more money than I have, and I may still spend more on tech than you spend on shoes because of how I prioritize those things. So I just don't see them as being particularly helpful. And, I, and what, I, what I see is them being off-putting for clients sometimes. Okay. Although um, one with, at least with some very basics, like the household yeah. income, at least it is allowing you to say, I know that this income level is not even going to consider us if we're a luxury brand, right? It, there's, there has to be some, some parameters. They just might be so narrow that it doesn't matter. 
Well, and I just think you have to be careful. I've done studies with luxury brands mm -hmm. where people who have far lower income than expected are buying those brands because Fair they enough. are they are saving up. It's a big priority for them. Right. They are saving up and they're spending that money. I mean, look at it this way. You see kids all the time, right? 18, 19-year-old guys spending way more than they can afford on their cars. Sure. Right? And buying high-end rims and buying high-end stereo systems and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying there's never going to be any kind of a demographic correlation. That's silly. But I think that we need to lean on it a lot less than we do. And I would argue that we need to start with the other stuff first. I think we okay. need to start with the attitudes that are driving someone towards this purchase, whether they're doing it in their organizational role or for themselves personally. Mm -hmm. I think we need to start with that and get that and then look at, all right, now, do, do, does a demographic understanding add to this? And if it does, great. And if it doesn't, we should just leave it out. Fair because, enough. Because if we're experts and we're relying on demographics, our clients who are typically not experts are going to, are even more likely to do that. And, mm -hmm. and what I, you know, what we don't want them doing is seeing someone walk in the door and assuming something about them that isn't true simply because of the way they look, because that'll torpedo your whole, your whole marketing strategy. So, um, so, so what are the, so what are the areas that a client should really be paying attention to and looking so, at? So I think it's about attitude. Um, you know, we do attitudinal segmentation research and, and, we see over and over that segments that are based on attitude often aren't differentiated by demographics. So for example, um, we had a client who does high end luxury home fragrance products like potpourris and scented candles and, and things like that. And for that product, um, we actually see folks buying it for different reasons and being driven by different things to decide what they're going to buy. So there's certainly for this particular client, there was a group that was very fragrance focused, right? So they're looking to those products along with a bunch of other products like fresh flowers, maybe, or chocolate chip cookies in the oven or whatever to establish sort of their mood when they walk in their door, right? They're creating an environment at home that's based on fragrance. And so that's particularly important to them. Um, so that's no big surprise if your company's based on marketing fragrance products. But then we found folks who are buying these products to decorate with. So they're building beautiful mantle displays. They're decorating for all different kinds of events. Um, you know, they're color coordinating stuff in the bathroom or whatever. And for them, it's really about design and color and a variety of those things and sort of continuously new looks um, and options. And for them, fragrance can actually be a problem because often they're cooking. So fragrance is interfering with something they have going on. You know, you can't have very heavily scented candles on the table uh, if you're serving a roast or whatever. And if, if you have a bunch of different things in the green bathroom and they all smell different, you've got a problem. <laughs> it doesn't right. smell good, right? Not so a you want to be in. Right. So sometimes those folks are actually looking for unscented or they'd like to choose the fragrance that's in it so it can complement something else that's going on. Um, some folks are just gifters. Some folks right. are just looking at those products to give to somebody else. And quite honestly, they care far less about what's in the package than they do about what's on the outside. How attractive does the package look? How high end? What is the brand's reputation for luxury and for cost? Because they really want people to say, oh my goodness, you shouldn't have. This is so generous. This is so beautiful, whatever. And all of these folks buying the products from this particular brand look the same on paper. They show the same age uh, ranges, they show the same gender splits, they show the same income. You can't tell the difference from them on paper because it's all something happening in their head. And that's an, that's an attitudinal segmentation. And that gives any marketer, I think, who's listening, a much better idea of what to do for each of those people, what kinds of messages that they would respond to, what kind of products or promotions they would be interested in, much more than 
you know, female 25 to 49, right? Absolutely. So how do you go about, and I know this is your specialty, <laughs> how do you go about actually figuring this out? Because it's not that you're just walking up to a group of people one by one on the street and saying, hey, what are you thinking about? How yeah. do you go about this? How do you actually dig in and find out this super valuable information? Well, if you can't actually do quantitative, statistically reliable research, you have to do the best you can, like in all situations. I'm a small business owner, as are you. Um, and I think that in the early stages of this, talking to clients, understanding, asking questions about the kinds of problems that they're trying to solve and what's been in the way so far can help you um, sort of can help you start to frame what those different uh, personas may look like. Now, talking to individual people or even talking to focus groups isn't going to tell you statistically if you're right. It's not, it's going to give you an idea of what's, what may be out there and is certainly out there with respect to the people you've spoken to, but that can be a pretty small sample size. So in some cases, you just sort of have to test and try offers and try language and, and search terms and see if they work. If you're lucky enough to be able to do some research into this, we can actually explore those attitudes in a large-scale survey of your customers, your prospective customers, even your lapsed customers, and see what's happening in that population with respect to the kinds of attitudes that are driving groups of people to look at your category and your, and your product. So the way we're doing it is with um, large sample size survey research that, that digs into those attitudinal questions and segments the respondent group that you have by those attitudes exclusively. Now, once we have those attitudes, we could look at a bunch of other information we've collected in the survey, like demographics, age and gender and income, like um, maybe competitive awareness and usage, um, like preferred um, product opportunities, uh, like messaging, um, like social media usage or where they're getting their information or who they're listening to in terms of recommendations and see if there are differences between those attitudinal groups that actually matter, that would actually help you as an organization better find those people, better serve them, what they want, where they, where they want to get it, right? Um, but, you know, that's, if, if, if you can do that, I could tell you it's just, it's incredibly illuminating to see. And often clients will say, oh, you know, I, ex I expected to see that but I sure didn't expect to see that, you know? And, and for me, that's, a, that's the hallmark um, of, a, of a study I'm happy with. If a client, you know, I mean, you run a business and I run a business and we probably have some pretty good ideas about the kind of people that would want what we do and that would work well with our organization. And clients are no different. It's not that they don't know their customers. It's just that they may have a narrow view of them just as we do and not, not expect that people are searching them out for a particular for, for a particular reason. Um, so for me, a good study is a mix of one that shows a client something that they expected to see and something that is new um, and that they didn't expect to see and that can expand their understanding of their opportunities um, with target customers. And when you do these studies, typically how big of a sample market do you actually have to go out to in order to get the results? So um, ideally we want 400 completed responses to a study. Now, Sometimes in a B2B situation, there aren't even 400 companies <laughs> out there <laughs> that buy a particular thing or do a particular thing, right? And in that case, we're working towards getting the majority of the companies to participate in something like this. But in most cases, it's a minimum of 400. And the best, you know, the, my best day is when a client launches a survey. I've got two out right now where they've already got over 2,500 respondents. And that's great. Like more data is the better. Um, okay. And how, how many you have to invite to participate in something like this to get 400 really depends on the client. All of our projects are custom and we do work, for example, for membership organizations where response rates to surveys is often very high. 
And then we do um, surveys for folks who maybe don't have a database and we need to find respondents or they're specifically looking for respondents that don't know anything about them. And so you have to plan for lower response rates in those situations. So 400, those, the magic number is a minimum. That's good to know. I think that's probably a lot lower than a lot of people actually thought listening. Yeah. You don't need, you don't need 20,000 people with 400. You're, you're, you're tasting enough of the soup to know what's in the whole pot. That's pretty cool. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay. So here's my next thing that people aren't doing right with their personas. They're putting pictures on them, right? A lot of pictures and they're naming them Tom, Dick and Harry. Right. And then like, here's the woman with the two kids and here's the multiracial family or couple or the older couple or whatever. And if you're doing demographic personas, you, that's what you're stuck with. But like the personas themselves, the pictures aren't helpful. As soon as you show a client a picture on a persona, they instantly think that everyone in that persona looks like the people in that picture. So if they don't, you've got a problem. Now, if you're doing demographic personas, okay, maybe you can get away with it. But I like icons for personas, okay. um, especially for attitudinal personas, because you can identify an icon that really speaks to the main attitudinal difference between this group and the other groups, you know, and then no matter who sees that, no matter how unsophisticated they are with regard to marketing um, or looking at personas, they'll get it. They'll understand it. And it's not associated with a face that they have to try to then reconcile if a 40-year-old African-American man comes in and happens to be this persona that's represented by an 18-year-old white girl. They don't have to try to figure that out in their heads because it becomes a non-issue. So right. I'm not, I don't like, I don't like pictures on my personas. <laughs> I, like, I like icons. What are um, some of your favorite icons you've used? So, you know, I, every, every single study is different. I have a, um, I did a study with Tufts University talking to their alumni because they wanted to put on an event. And one of the groups that we found in that, um, in that population really felt like they had a tremendous uh, level of expertise in whatever it is they did. You know, they had a long career behind them. Um, They were really, um, they were really sort of leaders in their field and their real impetus for being connected to Tufts and staying connected to Tufts was that they really wanted to advise the university with what they know to help the university be successful in the future. Um, And I used a little genius icon for them. You know, because that's really where their headspace is. Like they know their stuff. They're really good at what they do. And they really want to help the university with that expertise. Um, But, you know, I mean, there's millions and millions of icons out there. I think it just depends on what's driving the particular group that you're talking about and what makes them really different from the other group. But they can be incredibly effective um, at just helping your team and your client and their team remember what really matters and what's what's really the difference between these populations. And so if you're using an icon to identify, are you also naming the persona based on that icon yeah. as well? Uh, yep. I, you know, I, I, I name them for my, my agency clients when we're going through um, the results of a study. Um, and sometimes the agency client will come up with something snappier for their own persona development when they're sort of translating that into a document for the client. But yeah, I think names are important. Mm-hmm. I just don't just leave the pictures off. Okay. <laughs> um, right. And then, so my, my other big gripe about um, personas is that we, you know, so we get them all done, right? And then, and then what happens? They go in a drawer and we don't ever look at them again. Right. We do nothing. We do nothing with them. We spend all this time and all this effort, the client's money and, and they never get used. And, um, you know, I call it the dusty binder syndrome. Uh, I think usually it's just, it's just been some big production. And again, I'll go back to the fact that they're often just not helpful. People don't know what to do with them. Um, and so they get shelved and everything continues as it, as it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's just a client just being stubborn. Um, I had a, I had a client many years ago 
where we did um, we did a, a a big study for them, and one of the things that the study showed was that um, a big tenet of the client's marketing was that they were a family-owned business and had been for many, many years. And of course, that was incredibly important to the organization itself, right? But we, we tested whether that was important to the audiences that they were serving and were, and, and were trying to serve. And it wasn't. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. Um, and then, so we did, we did the study and, and they were very, very excited about it. And then um, about two months later, I heard that they decided to keep running their existing television, which was all about the family-owned thing, because they already had that filmed. And so they thought they'd just keep running that. Even though we knew, we had proof that it wasn't resonating right. with their audience. So sometimes, you know, people just make silly decisions. But I think more times it's a function of not knowing what to do with personas and not knowing and not finding them helpful um, in pursuing that. You know, I think HubSpot's a great example. You know, if you're using HubSpot or Infusionsoft or whatever, and you're working with demographic personas, they, they, you still have to figure out what to say in that message. And they're not very helpful, you know, demographic personas about doing that. They don't help you figure out what to say. So you're sort of back to the drawing board, right? Like trying to make assumptions maybe based on a demographic profile or just, again, guessing and coming up with them on your own. Um, but all the work is still there to be done. So, you know, if, you, if agency people don't like to do that and they're getting paid to do it, you can imagine how excited the client is to do that, you know? So personas don't get used and everything goes back to the way it was. Um, I like personas that are are so easy to understand, right? Because we can all, we all know somebody. Think about the candle example. We all know somebody that's one of those kinds of people, a fragrance person or a decorator person or, you know, a gifter person. We all have a friend like that. So, so if you're in that company and you're working with those personas, you understand those people and you can have incredibly productive brainstorming discussions about what those people would find appealing or resonant and what they wouldn't, what kinds of things you could offer them in terms of resources or new products, what kinds of messaging are going to appeal to them. It's just, you know, once you, once you get into people's heads like that, they get it, they get it absolutely. And then that information can really be shared throughout the organization. This is another one of my pet peeves is when personas just stay in the marketing department. Um, That's crazy. You know, we have tens of consumer touch points, customer touch points throughout Mm -hmm. our organizations, right? All sorts of people who are developing new business and talking to prospects, but also people who are providing customer service, who are doing product development. There's just all sorts of stuff. And if only the marketing people know what the personas are and what's important, it's a huge waste because, um, you know, because customers know if we're talking to them, and if we're talking to everybody, I mean, I, there's nothing less fun than going to a website that says we sell to anyone, figure out if there's anything here that might work for you. You know, that's just the most uninspiring message ever. And probably 97% of the websites on the internet do that. <laughs> they just say, sure. here's, our, here's our stuff, figure out if you want any of it and click order, you know, and, and it's, it's just not appealing. Whereas you know, if you can have an organization that from top to bottom embraces the customers that they want and shows that they understand them and their needs and their interests and their challenges, mm-hmm. it becomes pervasive. And that's what makes people loyal to brands, I think, is that they feel like brands understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got we to gotta get them so they're usable. We got to get them so they're helpful. And then we got to make them pervasive within these organizations. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as you've been speaking, it's not just a brand module in regards to this. It's not a model that just affects brands. It's absolutely one that affects agencies and how we're marketing to other uh, clients, other agencies, other anyone's. Yeah. Ourselves. Yes. We're market. Yeah, absolutely. Or our employees too, even. Absolutely. I mean, we know this intrinsically. We know that not everybody is the same. 
You know, if you run a business, if you manage people, you know that you have employees that are motivated by different things. Mm -hmm. Some people want money. Some people want time off. Some people want to work at home. Some people want um, accolades and promotion and visibility. And we know this, but still we sort of treat everybody exactly the same. And it's, you know, it's just dispiriting. At, At best, it's, it, it doesn't do anything for anybody. At worst, you really start, I mean, you have the potential now to really turn off your customers or prospective customers by talking mm-hmm. about something that is off-putting for them. And, you know, I, I never suggest that brands um, mislead potential customers about who they are or what they do. You know, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, two-person company showing clip art of eight people around a conference table. Right. <laughs> kind of thing, right? Um, but at the same time, I think there are some things that you offer that are of less interest at best and might actually turn other turn people off. So one of my clients um, was a restaurant chain, um, Mexican food, and they had people who love them and love really spicy, hot, Mexican food, really authentic, really, you know, they want to know where the peppers come from. Like, I think they're crazy, but there you go. Right. So they have that group, (laughs) but then they have another group that loves this chain, but really doesn't like spicy food are are really afraid of spicy food. So they want very sort of mild things. And they know that they know that they can go there and get that. So the nice thing for the brand is that both of these customers love this chain and find something that they want there. But if you're treating everybody the same and saying, oh, you know, we can be as spicy as you want to be, or we, you know, don't be afraid. The problem is you're shooting yourself in the foot with one or the other of them. Right. Because the spicy people don't think you're serious and the mild people are afraid to eat there. So you're only 50% right. Right. That's right. So messaging like that needs to be done at a segment level. So maybe you have a newsletter specifically about heat specifically talking about the new hot thing on the menu, um, specifically talking about where you source your peppers or having a special evening that is all about heat. But it's just for those people. And you're not, you're not defying your promise to the mild people. You're not defying your promise to the hot people. You're just recognizing that they're different people. Um, and if all your, you know, we all know anybody who works on websites and marketing and sees analytics knows that you can't make people dig through too much stuff that's irrelevant before you they give up and you lose them. Right. You know, we have to get to relevance more quickly, and sometimes that means um, peeling away stuff that's irrelevant for a particular group, just so they can get to the content that's going to be most appealing to them. Fair enough. So you've talked about some ways that you definitely can absolutely lose out <laughs> if you're not doing this the right way. Inside sales, right? We've all been there. <laughs> not only not going to be making sales, you're now turning off an entire customer. You could. Yes, you could. Absolutely. Yes. You, you created a social media just nightmare that now you're going to have to get other people involved in and trying to fix and save. So what are ways that you could actually one up this and, and make it into something that is a super big win? Like, like, yeah. So there's a number of ways to do it. So um, are you familiar with think geek? I am. Okay. So great online e-commerce store for all things geek everything you could possibly imagine at that place it's just amazing but they have two twitter feeds so the first one is just at think geek and on at think geek they celebrate all things geek they share weird youtube videos they celebrate this day in geek history um they show crazy videos of them of their team at the office doing weird geek things. Like it's just a celebration of geek culture. They never mention products. They never mention pricing. They never mention promotions. It's just their brand and who they it's, are. It's just the culture that they yep. are celebrating. Um, and then their other Twitter feed is is at Think Geek Spam, 
And it's all product news. It's new stuff, it's sales, it's promotions, it's all of that kind of stuff. And what I love about that is that they recognize that they have this core population that celebrates and loves ThinkGeek because they celebrate that geek culture, right? Mm -hmm. That's how they've built that extraordinary brand. But there are also folks that want to buy stuff from them. And it's not a perfect overlap, right? If you're a grandma whose grandson has said, get me something from ThinkGeek, you're not part of the geek culture. You don't have any idea, right? So you're just, you just want shopping, right? You just, and so, and, and I'm sure there are folks who follow the at ThinkGeek feed that aren't always buying stuff from ThinkGeek. Right. They just love that celebration of a culture that they love. So I think that's one way to do it is to really just be overt in recognizing that you have different people in your community and giving people ways to get the content from you that they want, right? Without trying to mush it all together and, you know, making an email newsletter that has eight different articles in it because you're trying to appeal to all these different segments, maybe you should think about offering people the option to subscribe to two or three different newsletters. Um, and just like with ThinkGeek, you can follow both those feeds if you want to, but you don't have to, right? The brand isn't making you consume content that you feel is sort of irrelevant and in the way. So that's that's one way to do it. And that's what something okay. like HubSpot can be really good at helping you with, right? Is really getting segmented messages and content out to particular groups. Um, right. But but they shouldn't be segmented just by I've bought from you or I haven't bought from you. Yeah. <laughs> or I bought from you online versus I bought from your catalog or, you know, sure. sort of differentiations like that. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is just go all out and do something for a particular segment. So Tufts, um, that I told you about, developed an event just for those folks, those advisor folks, those people who really wanted to provide their expertise to the university. Instead of creating an alumni event where they decided, you know, a third of the content's going to be rele relevant to these people and a third to those and a third to those, we're going to stretch it across three days and everybody should be able to find two or three things a day that they're interested in, right? They went all in and develop something called the Leadership Summit. Um, two days, come to Tufts, the content is specifically developed for these folks. So for example, the keynote is a sneak peek at the Tufts five-year strategic plan, and then an opportunity to talk to leadership about what they, you saw in that plan and what your thoughts are on it and how you might be able to help, right? Um, not all focused on go to a football game and, you know, let's go cheer on the team because those folks are really there for a different reason. They want to interact with senior leadership at the school because they have something to offer and they need a vehicle for doing that. Um, and it was tremendously successful for them and they've continued to do it. But, you know, it takes some, it takes some chutzpah, I think, to decide to build something for only one segment. And it takes some chutzpah to try to convince your leadership that that makes sense. Sure. Even though you might get more people to attend um, the first time you did it, right? But when Tufts did this event, virtually every single person said you should do it again. It was incredibly, sat incredibly satisfying. And the vast majority of the ones that attended the first one, now this is a pay to attend event, um, attended it again um, because they found it so relevant and helpful and we're really excited about it. So, you know, that's another thing you can do is, is really just say, you know, we're going to make our Instagram strategy about this particular group because we think that's, that's what the Instagram community that's following us is interested in. So we're not going to try to have content across the range of our audiences on Instagram. We're going to make that platform about this. We're going to make this event about that particular group. Um, and I, I think that's a, a really effective way to sort of work with individual segments and, and just try to give them what you want. I mean, a, a lot of organizations and a lot of agencies, um, the ones I worked out included, um, are developing sort of channel plans, mm -hmm. right? Here's our website plan. Here's our Facebook plan. Here's our Twitter plan. Here's our media plan. I like building plans from the, from the persona up. Because sometimes what you find out is that a particular channel isn't very relevant, maybe, for a particular persona. 
And you shouldn't worry about that. You know, if you've got a group that's incredibly visually oriented, like those decorators for the candle company, you need a Pinterest plan for those and an Instagram plan for those. Mm. But if they're fragrance-based, maybe it's about sampling so that they have the opportunity to smell some of your new offers, right? Because seeing a picture of it won't cut it for that group. That's not what they're there for. Um, So, you know, I think sometimes we need to turn our planning on the head and, and plan from the audience up instead of from the channel across. And what I love about what you've been saying is, you know, you took the whole, here's your drawing of your persona, you're using an icon, you're naming it, but you're not just shelving it into the drawer. You're actually bringing it into your marketing efforts. You're actually going to plan everything from, as you just mentioned, you know, how you're going to develop those channels, but Mm -hmm. also even into event activation. I mean, the fact that you're actually developing and bringing in across all of those different opportunities and touch points. Yeah, that's what we have to do. You know, I mean, if you, if you sell a prospective client on a highly relevant program and your capabilities for them, and then their experience with you as a brand doesn't match that, you've blown it. You know, you've blown it. You, you, you can't just promise it in marketing and then not deliver. I had a client, a, a retail client, um, another restaurant client, when we did their segmentation, one of the segments that they really wanted had a big problem um, and it had nothing to do with marketing. It was about, um, it was about the state of their bathrooms and the need for upgrades in their locations. Mm-hmm. And that's not a marketing problem. It becomes a marketing problem. Right. It's but, an operations you know, problem. It's an operational that... problem. And, and a lot of times we see opportunities operationally for segments um, that, you know, that really matter, right? I mean, um, I've done studies for, for example, dry cleaners, where they've got some folks who really want a personal interaction. They go to the locations. They want people to know them. They want them to be well lit, um, and convenient for them. But then they've got people who don't want to ever see a human being at the dry cleaner ever. They want to handle it all on their phone. They want it picked up and delivered. They're not going to a location to get their dry cleaning. Mm-hmm. And if you can't offer them that, they'll go someplace else. And right. something like that has big operational implications. Now, you can't always deliver operationally on what somebody wants. That's just a truth. We can't be all things to all people. But if you know that there is a population that you want that has a really big opportunity or challenge operationally, and you can't meet it, you have to decide, I'm probably not going to get those people. So I probably shouldn't spend my money trying to get them because ultimately I'm not going to deliver. You know, And that's where bad word of mouth comes from right? If people have a bad experience with us, we know how powerful word of mouth is and we need to be paying attention to negative word of mouth just as much as positive because it can kill a brand. It can do it. Um, So I think these kinds of conversations come up when you do personas the right way because sometimes there will be somebody in the room that says, you know, that's all well and good, but we can't deliver on that. We can't pull that off. So what are we going to do? And that's when the real conversations start to happen about appropriate personas and targets. And that's great. I mean, realistic expectations managed by the brand, quite important. It is. It absolutely is. And you'll get in trouble if you try to market to folks that won't be happy with you and you know it going in. You know, I have a small research firm and I don't market to clients for whom it is really important to have a forester research doing their, Mm -hmm. doing their work or, you know, one of those big brands Mm -hmm. that's there because I'm not that, you know? Um, And if that's important, then you should know that going in and not go get, not go after those people because it's going to be frustrating for both parties. It's a waste of time for everybody. So um, I think those kinds of decisions are important, but sometimes you can't see those things. If you're just looking at company size, title, you know, revenue, um, how many locations they have. Sometimes you, sometimes you miss that story. If someone's really trying to impress their boss or, you know, they want to use something for thought leadership and it has to come from a certain type of partnership, you know? So um, it's just, it's good to think about those things. Mm-hmm. Personas can uh, generate a lot of really interesting conversations. <laughs> 
they can. <laughs> they definitely can. And they can also end up, I've seen where um, a lot of focus ends up being put into certain areas where when you go back to the brand again, they're very dogged about yeah. what their expectations were and they don't necessarily want to invest in looking at other personas that were discovered along the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And you know, ultimately that's a client's decision, right. To do that. But, um, I, I work with, um, agencies and clients who are open-minded with respect to what they'll find. Um, and you know, I can never promise what we're going to, what we're going to find out. Um, so, you know, you have to have a little, you have to have you have to have a little gumption sometimes to go into a process like this, um, but it can be it can be really illuminating if you're open to it. It really can. Is there anything that you had wanted to talk about today that we haven't covered, or that you wanted to share other insight on before we I don't wrap think up? So. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, what I tell people, if you can do the research, that's great. Do the research. Even Mm -hmm. if you can't do the research, whether you're a business owner or a marketer or, you know, an account supervisor on a, uh, for a client that can't swing the research yet. I find that just thinking about things this way can really change how you approach looking at a client's ideal audiences and how you talk to them about it. And, and sort of where you go from there. So even if you can't do the research, try thinking this way. Try putting demographics the the last thing you think about instead of the first. And um, you might be surprised what you come up with. I have absolutely no doubt about that. Our our team, (laughs) when we get a new client on board or we're brainstorming for a new one, you know, and we're lucky that we have a very diverse culture um, and age range at our company and mm-hmm. having everyone gather around a table and talk and speak about what their point of views are. It's always surprising uh, sure. what angles people do come at for the same thing with the same information. Yep. That's right. We all have our blinders yeah. on and, and it's not, it's not an individual failing. It's just a reality. We all have a limited experience. So it's really good to go hear um, what your perspective uh, customers might actually want from you instead yeah. of what you think they want from you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I cannot thank you more. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking to all of our listeners. Really greatly appreciated. I know I learned a lot. I'm sitting here thinking about all the things that we need to do for our own agency, not our clients even, but our own agency right now <laughs> in this world and, and revisiting that wonderful original subset of personas I developed on HubSpot that maybe need to have a little bit of speaking done. <laughs> it's always, we're, at, we're in a, a, an eternally improving process, right? It's Of course. Keep working at it all the time as owners, but it's been great to be here and to talk about this with you. So, well, thank you. And then um, Susan uh, will certainly in the show notes include where people can find you, but do you want to give just a little bit of insight about what you do on a daily basis and as a takeaway? Yeah, I do research for small to mid-sized agencies and their clients. So I'm helping agencies and their clients figure out what those audiences look like and, and, and what they can be doing with them. So that's what I do day in and day out. And I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do that. Perfect. Well, again, thank you from all of our listeners and myself. And we look forward to chatting with you again in the near future. Thank you, Stacey. Me too.